We got a little bit of everything this morning, don't we? Uh, there's a jailbreak. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen the movie The Shawshank Redemption. There's a great moment in it where they've just gotten a bunch of books uh, for the prison library, and uh, the, the prisoners are sorting through the books, and they come across The Count of Monte Cristo uh, by Alexandra uh, Dumas, uh, which they make a crude joke about, which we won't do in church this morning. And uh, uh, they, one of the prisoners says, you know, well, what's this book? And Andy, the main character, says, uh, well, you'll like that book. It's about a prison break. And one of the other prisoners says, well, we ought to file that under educational too, shouldn't we? It's pretty funny, I thought. We're doing dad jokes this morning, uh, apparently. Uh, yeah, that's a, it's got a little bit of everything. And... Uh, I think that it's actually an important story for today. It's always an important story for today. Otherwise, God wouldn't have given it to us. But I think it has extra oomph for us. You know, I marvel at the speed with which our culture is changing these days. Maybe marvel is actually too generous a term. Sometimes it feels like the current of thought and moral reasoning in our culture is moving so quickly that I can barely even keep track of what is a society we're calling good and bad, what we're arguing about, who the interested people are, and how we're rethinking our history. It's all happening faster than anyone can really take it in. We all know it, and I think that most of us are struggling to find a way to deal with it. It's not just true in church this morning or at home. It's true, I think, in every household with every person. About 100 years ago, G.K. Chesterton defined the polarization of our society in this way. He said, the whole modern world has divided itself into conservatives and progressives. The business of progressives is to go on making mistakes. The business of conservatives is to prevent mistakes from being corrected. Thus, we have two great types, the advanced person who rushes us into ruin and the retrospective person who admires the ruins. Chesterton really had a way of turning a phrase. Now, you probably find yourself more or less in one of these two camps this morning, or at least leaning towards one of them. I'm not here to tell you that that's a bad thing. I don't actually think it is a bad thing. But what I want to do is point out that we need to be able to think of the world in bigger terms than the dualities we see in our culture today. In bigger terms, for example, than merely progressive and conservative. If you find yourself in that progressive camp today, I wouldn't dream of arguing that you have accomplished nothing good or that you want nothing good. You want a more just society according to your best conceptions. You want a fairer world. You want to do more than just admire the ruins. But remember that the ruins that some admire were at one time progressive. Remember that history has a way of repeating itself. There was a great Babylon Bee headline once that read, Millennial wishes there were some historical examples of socialism we could study to have some idea how it might turn out. You get the irony, right? Of course, this is a caricature, but what makes something a caricature is that it has some basis in truth. A caricature isn't a drawing of an imaginary face, but an exaggeration of a real one. If you're a conservative this morning, or you lean that way, the last thing I would tell you is that you are protecting nothing good, that all your efforts at preservation are foolish. 
There is much goodness, truth, and beauty in the tradition and structures that we inherit. But I would remind you that what you love so deeply was once progressive. You can't love America without remembering the radicals who broke ties with England. You can't worship the U.S. Constitution, actually you shouldn't worship the U.S. Constitution, even if it's great, without remembering that the founders themselves believed the document would need to be amended over time. There is a process written into the document itself about how we fix its failures and its problems. To do otherwise would be to become Amish in our character and thinking, and I don't mean to pick on them this morning, but you know, the Amish believe that the height of human development, the height of what we could be, happened about four centuries ago. And that's why they continue to live the way that we the way that they do. They believe that the height of human development has come and can only be maintained and never improved upon until I believe Jesus comes back. I guarantee that in whatever golden age we might desire to protect, we can find terrible flaws. It's just the truth. There has been no perfect period in history yet, and there will not be until Jesus returns. It may sound a bit culturally heretical, but I love both progressives and conservatives, which means very few progressives and conservatives love me. I feel like I'm in a 12-step program. Hi, my name is Ian, and I'm a moderate. But that's not actually my point. My point is that both progressives and conservatives think that it's up to us to make the world that we want. It's up to us. And of course, we do have real power to impact our own lives and the world around us. God made us that way. But we are not the masters of this world. We are neither the sole forces rushing it forward into ruin, nor the people solely responsible to maintain the ruins. All of creation is actually being driven by something greater than you and I, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. At these moments of great cultural upheaval, who will be the winner? Isn't that the question on all of our minds? What's the synthesis that's coming out of all of this? Let's take a look at what the Bible says. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. And after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. See, the first thing that we need to remember is that cultural forces are hugely fickle, divided, never as pure or wise as we want them to be. We need to get a little context here. These events that Luke is describing for us happen sometime between AD 41 and 44. And we know this because that's the period of time Herod Antipas rules in Judea. 
This means it's about 10 years after the events at the beginning of the book of Acts, about 10 years after Jesus died and rose, about 10 years after that first Pentecost where Peter preached to thousands of people and thousands of people chose to follow Jesus. And do you remember those those initial heady days of church life? Do you remember what they were like? Everyone thought the Christians were great except for the rulers of the Jews. They enjoyed enormous cultural popularity. And in 10 years, it's all gone. Herod has decided, you know what would be really popular is if I persecute the Christians. Good guys become bad guys at lightning speed, don't they? Progressives get mad when someone becomes a roadblock. Conservatives get mad when someone stops blocking the road. Sometimes I know from, I look at the way our government operates and I think what I really want is a divided legislature and presidency because roadblock seems the best way for us to thrive as a culture. Anyone here ever felt like that? Okay, so I'm all alone except for, except for Randy, who I really loved this morning, so... Take the example of J.K. Rowling. You know who she is? Uh, She wrote the Harry Potter series, which have been some of the best-selling books ever written. They turned them into, I don't even know how many movies now, that have made billions and billions of dollars. She's been enormously culturally influential. And after the Harry Potter series of books was finished, Rowling revealed that she had always conceived as one of the main characters, as Dumbledore, as gay. And this even became a major plot point in the newest movie based on the Potterverse. But then Rowling came out as believing that gender is fixed. And then there was a wild swing in approval-disapproval. She became, uh, at first, loved by the progressive bloc and hated by the conservative blocs for what she said about gay people. Then she became hated by the progressives and maybe kind of welcomed back a little bit by the conservatives because she came out against what a lot of people say about transgenderism. There's this wild swing. Say one thing that's wrong to a group which Rowling did obviously and very publicly, twice, first in the one thing and then the other, and it's all over. You are a public enemy number one. The further irony, of course, is that simply by angering one group, you might have made friends again with the first group that you made angry. We don't know what the Christians said or did, if they even said or did anything, or if perhaps others turned the general population against them. But we do know that perception of them changed quickly. Ten years, that's not a generation. It wasn't a new group of people that came along and said, actually, we hate the Christians. We think everything that they do is wrong or bad. It was the same people changing their minds about it for reasons that are hard to understand. And maybe we ought to conclude that popular opinion, even majority opinion, is fickle and untrustworthy. It can be right, and it can just as easily be wrong. Just because a lot of people think something doesn't make it true. And this isn't just idle speculation filling in the blanks here. James actually died. Christians really were hated. Peter was next for the headsman. That's the situation we find ourselves in here. Just because it was popular. 
Verse 3 again, when Herod saw that beheading James met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. And Peter's execution was going to be even more spectacular. It was going to be a party just after the biggest festival of the year, the Passover, that would draw the biggest crowds. It's all about the publicity. James died because Herod thought only his choices matter. There's no comeuppance for this. Herod's the king. Who's going to come out and tell him that he's wrong? He's making the majority of the people happy. There's not going to be a popular revolt. The Christians are marginalized. They're very much a minority group in the regions that Herod rules. No one's looking out for them. No one cares for them. Herod is answerable to no one. And he thought only his choices mattered. He had all the power. And you know what? It's not just Herod who thought that way. Because the, the killing, the execution of an otherwise innocent man, just because he was a Christian, everyone else was there nodding their heads along too. It's right because we will it to be right. And it's easy to fall into that sort of way of thinking, isn't it? It would be easy, it would be easier maybe I should say, to say it's just the other side that does that. That just says it's right because we say it's right. I was talking to Cal earlier this week, uh, and uh, we were talking about those phrases that everyone thinks in the Bible but aren't, like, you know, God helps those who helps themselves, not in the Bible. But how often do we go around quoting it, thinking that we are right? Or maybe not we in particular, but how often do people go around quoting it? You know, the Bible says God helps those who helps themselves. We don't really know. It's just convenient to think that there's an authority out there who thinks what I think. I'm right. That's the important thing. The little Christian church in Jerusalem must have felt entirely overwhelmed looking at the unanswerable power of Herod to make the rules up as he went. And if you're a Christian this morning, there's a good chance you feel overwhelmed as well. The powerful tide of culture in the West has been moving away from Christianity for years. The chorus of culture is united in decrying what Christians have long considered virtues. And our choices, they haven't always helped. Once the cultural majority in many ways, we often use that majority to bully others around to our way of thinking instead of taking the road of Jesus Christ and inviting them home. O sinner, clean up your act so that we will love you. Instead of, O sinner, find your peace and forgiveness, and acceptance in Jesus. Once the cultural majority in many ways, we're quickly finding out what it feels like to be on the other side. And you know what? I'm grateful for this in some ways. I am. Jesus came to seek and save especially those people on the margins. And it's hard to love the people on the margins when we're not on the margins too. How much more like Jesus do we have the potential to become when we become the people that he came to save? When we become the people that he came to have dinner with? Now the story goes on. 
The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. And to summarize, because you already heard the whole thing, an angel appears, kicks him in the side, which I always find hilarious, and tells him, put on your clothes. His chains fall off. The door opens. He walks him out through uh, the, the fortress where he's staying. And by the way, Peter, this is so unlikely that Peter thinks he's having a vision. It's not really happening. They get to the giant gate out of the fortress, and it just opens on its own. Peter walks outside, and he gets a full street away before he realizes that he is not in jail anymore. The angel disappears, and Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. See, there is an outside force acting on this world, isn't there? The things that make a difference in the world are not just the choices of the human beings who inhabit it. There is a God who is overseeing it. There is a God who is using circumstances and events in ways we don't understand in the very least, both in their hideousness and in their wonder. Do you think that when the church heard that James had been beheaded, they thought, clearly, because that's what God wants to do? Or do you think they were saying, God, why did you let this happen? They didn't understand, but they trusted God in the midst of it. Peter, on his way out, God's doing something wonderful, and Peter can't even see it or understand it until finally it's, you know, that angel disappears, and it's like someone's smacked him on the head and been like, wake up, Peter. And he understands, oh my gosh, God just took me out of that fortress. I was guarded by 16 Roman soldiers. There were so many doors in my way, and God opened every one of them. And then to anticipate what comes next, remember, he goes to the house where the people of the church are praying that God will do something about it. And he bangs on the door, and the servant girl comes up, and she realizes it's Peter. And she runs into the prayer meeting and says, that thing you're praying about? God has done it. He answered your prayers. Peter's at the door. And they say, no, he's not. (laughs) No, he's not. Because don't we believe that the things that really matter are not the God who acts upon the world, but what we do while we're here and what our culture is doing and what, what the people with power and authority are saying and being about. And let me just tell you, not only is that not the way it is, but that is so bankrupt. There is no hope. There is so little hope if all we have is our choices. There's that saying, you know, to uh, do something uh, multiple times and expect a different result is the definition of insanity. Right? Just keep trying the same thing over and over, and nothing changes, but you do it anyway because you think maybe this time will be different. Did you know we have thousands of years of human history? And we've tried it all. That Babylon Bee headline, if only there was some example of socialism that we could look to to see if it would all work out. Well, we tried that. And we found that the same forces that derailed all the other governments before it derailed socialism too. Right? The problem was that people who cared more about power than the people they served came into power. And that always happens. That's what happens in every empire in history. People get more concerned about protecting their power than about doing something good for the people that they are meant to serve. And those positions, they attract 
the worst in us like that, don't they? That's why in all the movies and books that people write and watch these days, who do we conceive of as the good leader? Remember the movie Gladiator? This is like 25 years ago. I should get some more current examples. But this one was really clear to me. You know, Maximus, he's, he's in the arena and he, he battles Caesar and he kills Caesar and they hail him as Caesar and that's what everyone wanted. Why? Because earlier in the movie, the old Caesar, Marcus Aurelius, by the way, there's no historical accuracy in this movie whatsoever. But the earlier Caesar says to General Maximus, I want you to be Caesar. And Maximus says, I do not want that. And that's how we know that he's going to be a good leader. I don't know if that's actually true or not. People cannot want to be Caesar for really good reasons. Like, I'm not qualified. But there's something about it that rings very true as well. We keep trying the same things and expecting them to work differently. We keep sitting in our churches and praying for good things and expecting that they're never going to happen. And so we go out and we just continue to live the same way. We go out continuing to think that the only choices that really matter are the choices that I make and the culture makes and the powerful people make. When there is a God who took Peter right out of Herod's clutches and changed the course of history. So what happens next? Got to pick up my Bible here. In the morning, picking up here in Acts 12:18. In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Right because Herod knows that God doesn't sneak people out of his prison in the middle of the night. His soldiers must have had something to do with it because Herod's rule is absolute in his land because there are no outside forces acting upon the world. But the story goes on. Uh, Herod's due to meet with some people from Tyre and Sidon. And uh, they're making up, and on the appointed day, Herod wearing his royal robes, which, by the way, were probably this amazing glittering silver color, so that when he came out onto the balcony to speak to all of those people assembled, he would have been shining in front of them. And they start to shout, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And it was true. It was true in Herod's mind. Not necessarily because he thought himself really a heavenly being, but because he was the king. And the choices that mattered were his. The voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Yeah, that's a gruesome picture. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, actually tells us that Herod took five days to die in agony. Partially, at least partially, he doesn't contradict any of the story we hear here. Uh, and he corroborates it in a number of senses. Herod died a terrible death, as Luke describes. You know, the thing that's ironic about all of this is that 
Herod probably never understood why. He probably never got the message that Luke was equipped to see through faith in Jesus Christ. Herod knew that everyone dies eventually. Some people die in awful pain. Some people die in their sleep. Some die in battle. Some die under the hooves of a horse or, you know, the fender of a bus or whatever else the case may be. Herod probably would have just figured, yep, this is just what happens someday to me. Because when God rescued Peter, Herod assumed, no, there's no God who does that. There's no God who holds me accountable. And see, that's part of the message this morning, too. If there's a message of encouragement for the church here, and there definitely is, that, hey, you know, all those forces that are acting out in our world today are themselves being acted upon by the greater force, by the one true God who loves his people and protects his church and answers their prayers in ways that they don't always see, don't even always recognize, but are always what they need. There is that God acting upon the world. That's a message of hope to those who follow that God. But if you're... I think sometimes when people outside the church, outside of Christianity, hear us talking about spiritual things. They assume that that's the time to tune out. But see, that's actually the message. The message that we take to the rest of the world isn't just your choices are, are wrong or bad. It's there is a God who cares about the choices that we make. There is a deeper, more wonderful reality to the world that we live in. And our lives will have the most meaning and the most depth when we live in light of that. Let's go back to James for a minute. James dies before the story even happens. In some ways, he's just a footnote to the story. He's the guy through whom the chain of events is set off, but apparently not the one through whom the important stuff happens. But I disagree. I think that what we're hearing about James here is that he, first of all, James was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. He's the brother of John, and James was one of those two who said to Jesus, grant it to us to sit at your right and left in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, well, you know, you don't really understand what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they, having no idea what Jesus was talking about, said, absolutely. And Jesus says, and so you shall. What was the cup that Jesus was about to drink? His death and his resurrection. His death and his resurrection. Peter, or excuse me, James died just like Jesus said he would. James wasn't unprepared for this, but not only that, James wasn't overcome by his death either. I heard uh, on a podcast yesterday someone saying churches used to have uh, uh, cemeteries as part of the property. Remember those days? <laughs> you might not remember those days because like 150 years ago. None of us are that old. But uh, probably we've at least heard of them. We might even know of some old churches that are still like that. Churches used to have cemeteries as part of their property. And one of the people on the podcast, actually both of the people on the podcast, were saying, we've lost something by virtue of the fact that there are no cemeteries at our churches anymore. 
Because what do you think it would have done to you walking in through the door of the church as you walk through the cemetery at the same time? Reminded of two things. First of all, you're not going to live forever. Sorry if I burst your bubble this morning. And secondly, death is not the end. Death is not the last word in the lives of God's people. That's why I say the cup that James or that Jesus drunk and that James, or James now had to drink as well was not just the death of Jesus unjustly, but new life at the end. Christians actually understand the nature of the world better than anyone else insofar as we understand the truth of our faith. Christians are best equipped to actually live not only like there are choices we make here that matter, but even more importantly, there is someone who acts on us and acts on our world and acts on our history. One thing before I close, uh, I was struck, and I think I've shared this before, by a movie I watched uh, a couple of years ago or so, uh, the Pixar movie Soul. It uh, wasn't my favorite movie I ever saw, but I loved the ending. And here's why. Um, especially if you're my age or younger, we have grown up being taught and we're continuing to be taught that the good times are over and everything is getting worse from here on out. That's the big message in culture. I mean, I, especially when it comes to the state of the environment on our planet, right? The world's getting hotter, it's getting drier, all of these sorts of things. And I am anxious. I find that there's this underlying anxiety all the time that, first of all, like, the world is going to end in a horrible way before my life is over. And secondly, that even if it doesn't end in a horrible way before my life is over, it certainly will before my kids go. And at the end of this movie, like, like I said, it wasn't my favorite movie, but the great thing about the ending is that the character comes to a new appreciation of, of life. And the movie ends with him walking outside into a world that's full of trouble and problems and brokenness. And smiling and taking it all in and heading out to a more hopeful future. That's what Christianity equips us to do better than anything else. Because the world did its worst to our master, to our Lord Jesus Christ, and he lives again. And he is coming back and when he does, he is the person who can step into all of those places of authority and influence and finally, finally break the cycle and do it right. He is the good king and he's coming back.